0: What we're going to do right here is go back, way back, back into time.
1: Hello, my friend, and welcome to another episode from the WW Radio Archives. I am Lou Mangiello, and this is show number 757. And each week, I'm going to select an evergreen episode of the show to share that maybe you haven't heard before, or one that you haven't heard in a long time whether it's an interview, a top 10, a relevant review, or a guide, or Wayback Machine, it's a great way to visit and revisit some of our favorite episodes, including ones that you have suggested that I share from the archives. And this week, to celebrate Mickey Mouses and my daughters, we didn't plan it, it just happened that way, on November 18th, I'm gonna take what Walt Disney said to heart and not lose sight of one thing, that it really was all started by a mouse. And so this week, we're gonna remember just that, as I have not one, but two segments from the archives that both involve Mickey Mouse. First, we're gonna venture into Magic Kingdom and explore not an attraction, a land, a shop, or a show, but a single location. In fact, a single statue because in our DSI Disney Scene Investigation Jim Corkis and I look at the history and the story behind the iconic partner statue of Walt and Mickey and that legacy of and bond between Walt and Mickey goes far beyond one of simply artist and creation in fact Walt actually lent his voice to his most famous work and over the years Walt passed that torch to other men who became the voice of Mickey and this week I want to share my conversation with Brett Iwen, the man who, 80 years after Mickey spoke his first words on screen, took over the role of a lifetime. We're gonna talk about his personal story of becoming the voice of Mickey, the legacy, and the future. And I'd love to hear from you. I think we all have a relationship with Mickey Mouse, and I want to know, what is your favorite or most fondest memory of you and Mickey? whether it's seeing him on screen, meeting and hugging him and magicing Kingdom for the first time, your vintage 1973 Mickey Mouse back scratcher. yes, I still have mine, whatever it might be, I'd love to hear yours. You can share your thoughts in the WDW Radio Clubhouse on Facebook over at wdwradio.com slash clubhouse. I'll post this p- question there. Or you can call the voicemail at 407-900-9391. That's 407-900-WDW1, even better. And I will share your story and your memory on the show but for now, sit back, relax and enjoy this week's episode from the archives on the WW Radio show. One of my favorite places in all of Walt Disney World is Main Street, USA. I love to take the time and wandering and sharing with you through the, the books, the, the audio guide to Main Street, the magazine, and so much more, some of the stories that take place there, and some of the incredible details. And as we reach the end of Main Street, one of the most beautiful and photographed locations and items anywhere in Walt Disney World is Cinderella Castle with the statue of Walt and Mickey in the foreground. And believe it or not, there is a story behind that as well, not just the details of the statue itself, but how it came to be here and its prominent place in front of the icon of Cinderella Castle. And we talk about stories behind the stories. Certainly, no one can tell it better than frequent guest and friend of the show, Jim Corcus.
0: Well, Lou, it's great to to see you again and uh, rosy-cheeked and uh, all of this. And yes, this is wonderful. This is uh, one of my favorite locations as well. uh, too, and in, in fact, you know, Imagineers do say everything speaks. In fact, that's one of the reasons that the Disney parks are theme parks rather than amusement parks. Is a theme is a story, and so there's stories behind why these things are located where they are, the the creation of them, and all of that. And and I noticed you you mentioned that this is uh, one of the most photographed uh, locations at the Magic Kingdom. Actually, this is the second most photographed location at the Magic Kingdom. Do you, do you have an idea what the first is? There's that Jim Corcus cardboard <laughs> cutout right at the beginning. I was wondering if that might be it. Ah, oh, that's that, That's close, but actually the, the first most uh, photographed location at the Magic Kingdom is the Floral Mickey at the front of the park. And again, another area where a lot of people just rush by, but uh, even beginning at Disneyland, that's how they associated this is Disneyland. And that, of course, was the marquee to let you know that you were coming into a living theater. What's playing at the theater? Why well, it's Mickey Mouse. And then you had the attraction uh, uh posters there, these are the coming attractions and then suddenly you're into the theater and you're you're part of uh the living experience. But uh uh this is uh terrific. The partner statue uh always touches my heart uh cuz I love Walt so much and love Walt's uh, ideas and concepts and um but real quick before we
1: talk about the statue itself let's take a quick step backwards because this statue was not always here this was not here in 1971 and certainly i remember as a kid and you can see a lot of the old pictures the hub itself looked very different and i if the the one thing that that impresses guests and still me to this day after being here hundreds of times is when you turn into town square and you get that reveal of cinderella castle in the distance at one point the reveal wasn't quite as spectacular because the hub was so much more built up with benches and it was so full of trees. Yeah, Yeah. it was so
0: very lush with trees. And and you're absolutely right. And that that was, uh, actually, that situation was even worse at uh, Disneyland because, as you know, the the castle is so much uh, smaller. And um, in the uh, 80s, especially the 70s and the 80s, Disney was doing an awful lot of promotions. And so they were using... That hub area. So, for instance, when they had uh, circus days, uh, smack dab in the middle of the hub, they might have the Wheel of Death, which is that big circle and the motorcycle guy going around and around, or they had the Blast to the Past celebrating the 50s and they had a huge, giant jukebox. And basically, what happened was uh, uh, John Hench and Marty Scalar took a look and said, this is ruining the story you're looking down Main Street and you should be seeing the castle of your dreams and you're seeing this giant jukebox you're seeing this you're seeing all of these things we've got to have something to prevent (laughs) operations from putting anything in that hub and uh, one of the things that they discovered too was that um, uh, it had been a while since walt had passed away so a lot of people had not grown up watching walt on uh, on TV. So a lot of kids and they were even some college students they were doing surveys uh, thought that Walt uh, uh was very much like Betty Crocker, completely made up character, uh or Colonel Sanders who was a real person but was just sort of an icon, didn't have day-to-day interaction, you know, uh with the with the business. And um, they took a look around, and they they said uh okay, Kellogg's cornflakes, Kellogg's cornflakes very very popular and it's uh, even got the signature of uh, Kellogg's on it. Everybody's had... What's Kellogg's first name? Harry. William, actually. Close. Okay, we'll do an easier one for you. Uh, Hershey, Hershey, Pennsylvania. He's got the... all those great candies. They've got an amusement park. I know this one. Okay, yes, okay. What's what's Hershey's first name? Milton. Milton, exactly. Most people do not know that. And so, um, now, when you say Disney, most people come up with walt and one of the reasons is because they said let's get a uh, statue you know to commemorate walt and this was a bigger problem uh than than you can imagine you know yes it'll be great to have a statue there because then they can't put anything else you know around there we can still see the castle but walt never wanted a statue walt always said statues are for dead people i don't want a statue so they had to get special permission from walt's widow lillian disney uh to create a statue And in fact, um, the statue was erected out at Disneyland um, around the time of Mickey's uh, 65th uh, birthday. And then later uh, installed um, out here at Walt Disney World and then, you know, at at the Disney parks uh, uh, around the world. But, you know, in reality, the statue began in 1962. Um, What happened is Blaine Gibson, an Imagineer, and a uh, very popular sculpture. He, uh, sculptor, he uh, uh, sculpted the uh, head for uh, Mr. Lincoln and for the Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, uh, all of that. In 1962, as a gift for Walt, he sculpted a bust and presented it to Walt. And Walt said, get that thing out of here, you know, what, what do I need with that? And so it ended up in Blaine Gibson's garage for decades. <laughs> Until Marty Scalar says we need a, you know, a statue of Walt, and so he pulled that out as reference. And so the head there is actually inspired by a sculpt of Walt while Walt was alive. And um, how do you begin uh, coming up with a, a design for a, a Walt statue? Because Walt was so many things, you know. What represents Walt Disney? And so working very closely with uh, uh, John hench uh, the dozens of concepts were proposed. One of them had uh, Walt holding the rolled-up blueprints for the original Epcot in his hand and pointing with the blueprints down the street. So you're pointing in the direction of where Epcot uh, uh, is now. In in one version, they had um, Mickey with an ice cream cone because they wanted that spirit of youth and they thought that no that made him look too young and also John Hench felt that that uh, uh would emphasize Carnation Ice Cream and and have one sponsor. Uh one version had Mickey running ahead and pulling Walt uh, along. And uh, so uh many many different versions before they they came up with this one. And one of the problems that uh, Blaine Gibson had was okay, Walt's going to hold Mickey's hand. What is the only reference I have of Mickey holding a live person's hand fortunately one existed and do you know what that is favor uh, us jim corkus have you been to the contemporary hotel have you been in the lobby of the contemporary hotel does that help you there's that the uh, the the statue in
1: the lobby of him with uh, stakowski
0: stakowski from fantasia so the only reference that um, blaine had was uh, Stakowski shaking hands with Mickey in Fantasia? So he used that as a reference of how would an animated hand interact with a live human hand. Now um, Walt is pointing, and he's pointing down the the street because the theme, as Blaine Gibson told me, of this statue is Mickey. Look at all the happy people who have come here today to spend the time with us.
1: And and you know that. The story of what is Walt pointing at has been the, su- the, the subject of speculation and urban legend that he was pointing to Epcot, that he was pointing to the future, that he was pointing to his brother. So it's nice to know that there is some sort of a, a reason that, and you knew Blaine Gibson personally, and he told you these stories
0: that that is what he was really trying to signify. Right, because again, the statue in California isn't pointing towards Epcot, it's not <laughs> pointing to all of these things, it's pointing towards these guests, and it actually comes from the story from uh, the night before Walt passed away. Roy was at his uh, bedside, and Walt was describing the uh, uh, layout of Epcot on the tiles uh, above the uh, hospital uh, room, and at one point, Walt goes there. That's the spot. And Roy froze, and Roy goes, I've been paying attention. What, did, what, what is he talking about? What did, what did I miss? And Walt says there, that's where we'll put a bench so that Lily and I can sit and see all the happy people coming in. And so now Walt has that spot where he can see all the happy people coming in, and he's uh, pointing to Mickey. Now he's pointing with the famous two-finger point, and Walt did point with two fingers. And what is the reason behind that two-finger point? You know, here at at, at uh, Walt Disney World and all that, we say, well, this is more gracious because pointing with one finger is, you know, uh, uh, spotlights people. So two fingers or the whole hand. He pointed with two fingers because. He was holding a cigarette. He was holding a cigarette. He was a smoker. And in fact, he didn't encourage uh, kids to smoke. So if you go back into the photo archives um, at the Disney studios, you'll see photos from the 40s where Walt has his uh, hands crossed in front of him or over at the side, and he's got the two fingers and there's a little puff of smoke in the air but there's nothing between the fingers they've airbrushed out the cigarette cuz he tried not to do that uh, in public to encourage you know kids to smoke but that's where that famous point uh, came from and uh, one of the things that people bring up all the time is the little emblem that's on his tie it's the smoke tree ranch which is where he had his uh, vacation home in uh, palm springs and uh, I said, well, Blaine, how did you get the uh, proportions there? And he says, well, Walt was about 5'9", but he always liked to say he was 5'10", or a (laughs) little... And, and, and in fact, he was a little self-conscious about that, because when Disneyland opened, both Fess Parker and uh, Buddy Ebsen were well over six feet, one of them 6'5", and so to have his picture taken next to them he actually got an apple crate out of a photographer's van put it there and he stood on it so he's standing up almost shoulder to shoulder uh... Don't, with them. Don't look, don't look down at me like that <laughs> as you say that. Just because I'm, I'm standing up. for an apple crate over here. <laughs> um, and Mickey we know is three feet high and the only reason we know that is because Frank Thomas was able to convince Walt in the movie The Pointer they were having difficulty staging a scene, and they said, can we film you doing Mickey's voice? And Walt says, well, if you're way in the back and you don't make any noise and all of that. And in, in that film, basically, Mickey is confronted by a big, huge bear who's going to attack him. And Mickey goes, oh, gosh, uh, 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 I'm Mickey Mouse. Uh, 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 you know, uh, 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 um, Mickey Mouse, I uh, 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 hope you're hurting me. I uh, 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 hope... And he held out his hand exactly three. Yes, Jim Corcus did. <laughs> Gorse, the <laughs> Jim did Mickey's voice. <laughs> gosh and so uh, Walt held out his hand about three feet high, and so that's how they know that Walt thought that Mickey was three feet high, and so. Uh, Blaine combined uh, those proportions. Now, again, uh, you know, in an earlier segment, we talked about John Hinch talking about, you know, the difference in color because of the skies and all that. You'll notice that the partner statues are different colors uh, around uh, the world based on um, not how they were created, but in terms of blending in with the rest of the colors of that area there. And uh, I, I, I think Walt would be uh, very happy to uh even though he hated statues I think, especially of him i think he'd be very happy to have uh uh that uh, statue there so that, and also so we can remember that you know this really is walt uh disney world and even just in the time that we've been spending here so many people a constant flow of of, of people uh taking pictures standing up there on 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 the railing uh all of that so um, a wonderful wonderful uh nice uh a little touch for this park and for all the Disney parks. And just one other detail that I always invite people to look at is on his outstretched hand,
1: he's also wearing a ring, and it's a traditional Irish claddagh ring that both he and I believe his wife also wore. Absolutely, you are absolutely uh, uh, correct. So and so, I found it fascinating as you were talking about the incarnations of what the statue could have been I said wow that's that's so interesting to try and picture it that way but to when you see it this way and you sort of think about the way you're describing it you almost couldn't imagine it being anything else other than something as simple as that
0: as what we have now. Absolutely I, I, I agree and, and here at uh, Walt Disney World it actually works on that other level by him pointing down if you follow that line you get down towards where the flagpole, where the Roy statue is, also done by Blaine Gibson, and I, I think that's Walt giving a little acknowledgement to his brother, who who saw through the dream out here to build the Magic Kingdom, wouldn't have happened without Roy. And to see the uh, Walt head, the Walt's bust, you can head on over to Disney's Hollywood Studios in the um, the courtyard over there for the. Uh, uh, Academy of television radio arts and uh, sciences right. uh, there and as you so pointed out uh, so eloquently on
1: a prior show it is the only statue there that's signed
0: right signed by Blaine Gibson right on on the back there and again also that based on that uh, bus that he, fortunately he kept in his garage for decades normally a sculptor he, he says normally people would just smash these things if they weren't going to use them he says I just didn't have the heart to do that and I'm glad I didn't well, and so are we, because obviously it's, it's an
1: icon of the park. It's, like you said, so photographed, and I hope that this segment helps people appreciate more what it represents and the history behind it and what it, and what it signifies for the millions and millions of guests that come through, that uh, they get a chance to see it and hopefully get a chance to hear Jim Korkis tell more of these stories that only you can tell. Um, and again, to read more of Jim's work, Check out Celebrations Magazine. Jim is a frequent contributor with his stories behind the stories as well as to the the WDW radio show. And of course, find out more about Main Street and some of the other details and stories. Be sure and check out my audio guide to Walt Disney World available on CD and download at WDWRadio.com or iTunes. Jim Korkis, Disney historian, Disney expert storyteller extraordinaire and good friend thanks so much for coming on the show
0: lou always a pleasure i I know your listeners love the show i do as well and yes i've got copies of those cds i recommend them to everybody else as well
1: i couldn't ask for a better endorsement thanks thank you Since the first time we heard him speak the words hot dogs in 1929 in a short called The Carnival Kid, Mickey Mouse became more than simply a cartoon character, he became arguably the most recognized face and voice in the world. In that first role, and for years to come, he was voiced by his creator, Walt Disney himself. In 1947, starting with the Mickey and the Beanstalk segment of the fun and fancy-free package film, the task and role of Mickey's voice was handed to veteran Disney musician and actor Jimmy MacDonald, as Walt was simply too busy to continue. In 1983, the late Wayne Allwine voiced Mickey in Mickey's Christmas Carol, and continued to do so until his passing in 2009. And that really was a perfect match as Allwine was, coincidentally, married to Russie Taylor, the voice of Minnie Mouse. But in 2009, the torch was passed to a new Mickey Mouse, and my next guest, he is Brett Iwin, And Brett, I want to welcome you to the WDW radio show.
2: Wow, hot dog!
1: <laughs> Thanks for having me. I was hoping you would do it, and, and I love the fact that you lead off with it. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I certainly want to talk to you all about your, you know, certainly the role of a lifetime. But real quick, tell us a little bit about your background
2: because you didn't sort of start
1: out as a voice guy. You were an artist, correct?
2: Yeah, that's correct. Um, I started out as an illustrator. Actually, went to school uh... ringling college of art and design which is in sarasota florida and from there i got a job as an illustrator working for hallmark Cards in kansas city and that was always kind of my passion my dream was to work for disney and um... at an early age it was uh... i wanted to be an animator so of course i was drawing disney characters learned to draw by drawing disney characters and mickey mouse um... so that was always my background and um... you know th- oddly enough the background is what led me into the voice acting because it was a friend of mine from college who works at Pixar now as an animator? Um, she received the internal memo uh, discussing the audition process that was going to start. Um, so she's the one who informed me of it, passed along the info, and because of hers, uh, how the whole process started. So yeah, yeah and it's pretty. I was an artist, but it, it eventually led me to the voice acting, I guess. <laughs>
1: Well, it's it's funny because you sort of always had that connection. You were a Disney fan. Uh, you were an artist. Even Hallmark, you know, Hallmark had their sort of historic relationship oh, with yeah. Walt Disney and the company for many years. But, you know, Brett, every look, everybody thinks they can do Mickey. Um, some are obviously <laughs> better than others. When did you start doing it and be like, hey, I, I can do this. I can, I can be Mickey
2: Mouse. Um, you know, I think... The earliest I can remember doing it was, you know, sometime in grade school. My, my grandpa um, w- did a pretty good Donald Duck impression. At least, you know, at that age, I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> and I could never do it. I, I'd always try, and I could never do Donald's voice. Um, so I just remember one day being, you know, thinking to myself, well, if I can't do Donald, maybe I'll try to do a different character. And um, like I said, huge Disney fan, especially Mickey. I've loved him as long as I can remember. So naturally, I tried to do Mickey. Well, it didn't really work at first. I remember, you know, attempting it, but something about reaching that falsetto just wasn't there. Um, I was a huge fan of Fantasmic. And after a trip to Disneyland one time, I came home with the soundtrack and listened to that thing over and over and over again. And eventually I started to try and do the voice as Wayne had done it in Fantasmic. Still didn't work. But then at one point after my voice had changed, um, on a whim, I tried it again and it kind of sounded good. At least I thought, so um, at that point, it just kind of became a little little trick that I did for my friends um i never I never really thought it was you know anything amazing. Uh, I figured a lot of people could do it, but it was just you know I'd give an oh boy or a laugh for my friends when we'd go to the theme parks and um, that was really all it was i i never I never planned on it becoming a a career and especially in an official capacity. That just seemed, you know, unrealistic and so far to reach. But, um, you know, who knew? Now I'm here, and it's definitely surreal and um, exciting and uh, overwhelming at times, but yeah.
1: Well, so you, so you hear about this opportunity, truly, I mean, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, considering the the short legacy of people that preceded the voice of Mickey Mouse. Can you tell us about maybe preparing for the audition and what that audition process was like?
2: Well, the audition process started out with a phone um, audition, a hotline they had set up. Um, Wayne's health had been declining for a while, and, and uh, sadly they decided that maybe it was best to start finding somebody who could maybe be an understudy to Wayne. So in that process, they decided, well, you know, traditionally, like you had mentioned at the top of the interview, that Mickey had come up through the studios So they thought, why not, let's start our search internally. So they sent out a a company-wide memo to all their animation studios um, discussing the audition process and uh, had this phone line set up. So they attached a script and there was an MP3 reference file where you could hear uh, some Walt clips and some Wayne clips. um, And what they're looking for was a voice match. They wanted you to get as close as possible. when I got that email that first night, I was overwhelmed with excitement. I couldn't believe that, you know, this opportunity had found its way to me. It was just, it was unreal. Um, so, of course, I was, like, overly excited, and there was a, I think the hotline was going to be open for about two months, and, you know, in in the email, it mentioned, you know, take your time, practice, <laughs> to get, prepare for this audition, and I, I couldn't. I was so excited, I couldn't wait, so... I think my best friend convinced me to wait about three days, and in those three days, you know, I listened to that MP3 file over and over and over again, and I practiced, and I did it for friends, and I kept telling my friends, you know, tell me honestly, because I don't want to be one of those people who auditions for American Idol and says, all my friends and family say <laughs> I'm great, but the rest of America is listening and going, well, I don't know what those friends were thinking. So, you know, I, I tested out for friends. They all were very encouraging, and uh, I think it was about three days after I found out about the audition, I... I called the hotline, I'm heart racing, um, shaking, and I, I left my name, my phone number and the audition. Uh, you know it felt like two seconds worth when I was done. And, and then I started being paranoid that, did I leave my right number? Did I leave my correct name? <laughs> um, so yeah, my, my preparation wasn't much. It was, you know, it was definitely a little rushed, but um, I think just the, the excitement and the passion I had behind Mickey was already there. And so there wasn't too much I had to do to prepare to get to know the character by any means. And so
1: literally does the phone ring one day and, and somebody says, Oh, by the way, uh, just so you know, you're going to be Mickey mouse.
2: <laughs> well, uh, kind of, it was a little <laughs> lengthier of a process. The phone, the phone did ring and um, they, you know, since they were looking internally, they they assumed that I was somewhere in California and uh, finding out that I was in Kansas City was a little bit of a shock for him because um, the voice of Mickey Mouse has to be in, in Southern California around the Burbank Studios because that's where um, industry is, and that's where everything happens, and they need Mickey so much. So um, the idea of finding someone in, somebody and having them relocate was a little bit more than they were looking for, but um, after they discussed it, they uh, gave me a call back and said that they would really love me to be a part of that audition process because they were starting callback auditions at that point they wanted to do in-studio auditions and uh, so I had to fly myself out to LA took a trip out here with my best friend and uh, went to the studios did my first in-studio audition ever my first time behind a microphone in the sound booth um, did that and you know at that point they had a few other candidates that they were having callbacks with so it was about two months I think went by uh, before I was called in to start doing test projects, unfortunately, within those two months is the time when Wayne passed away, and uh, never meeting him, I was still so heartbroken when I found out that news because uh, you know I had set it up in my head that I was auditioning to work with him to learn from him, and uh, you know the the honor of being Mickey aside, I was so excited at the prospect of having the honor to get to meet this legend and, and, and learn from him. So that was a really sad time for everybody uh, at the studio and the rest of the cast and even for myself. Um, but I was called in and started doing some test projects, uh, which were real projects that had to be done, but test projects in terms of me being the voice. And that was when I did a, a parade little segment at the end of the day for animal kingdom. And I started with some Disney on ice projects. And it was a couple projects after that is when they sat me down and said, you know what, we'd like you to be the guy. You're doing a great job. We'd love to have you move out here. So at that point I had to pack up my life in Kansas city, sell my house and move out here. Fortunately enough for me, out here is home. So I was essentially moving back home, but still definitely a, a challenging time to pack up and relocate, especially, uh, to start a new career that I knew nothing about.
1: But again, you're coming from Kansas City, another Walt connection, so it was really, Brett, it was fate for you to become Mickey Mouse, considering that. Uh...
2: <laughs> you know, I, I, I jokingly say my life has somewhat taken a Walt journey in a way. I, I grew up in Southern California, surrounded by the Disney Studios and Disneyland. In high school, my family moved to Central Illinois, where, you know, Walt was born in Chicago, so there's Disney history in there at, at that location. And then I went to school in Florida just hours away from Disney World. And then I ended up in Kansas City where you know Walt uh, had his early beginnings doing um, cartooning for the Kansas City Star and working for the Kansas City Film and Slide Company and, and eventually starting his laugh gram Studio, which is still there and um, where I'll be participating in a fundraiser May 7th um, with the Thank You Walt Disney organization who is has taken on the task of restoring that location and, and saving it um, so that the history of it is, Really appreciated.
1: Yeah. And, and I would certainly want to talk to you about that event uh, coming up very soon of that private evening with Mickey and Donald, but let's just quickly go back to you getting the role because I okay. have to assume, you know, you're, certain, you're, you're doing test work, so maybe you don't have time to process it, but I have to imagine that you're nervous or do you realize that I'm going to be the guy I'm going to voice really, Brett, the most recognized public figure in, in history not only that you're representing more than just a character or a brand or even a company because of what Mickey means to so many generations of people
2: yeah it that is the part that you know as you say that I get goosebumps because it's it's um, it's so surreal for me and at the same time such an honor and I think I had that mindset going into it from the beginning um, you know Wayne would always say and uh, I like to imagine Wayne would have told me that you know, we're just filling in for the boss. I'm just doing my part now as Mickey number four to fill in for the boss or t- carrying on that legacy Walt started. And I'm number four. There's going to be a number five, um, you know, starting out though, I was definitely nervous. I, I, this was so brand new to me to be, to be doing it. And, and the opportunity seemed so, um, out of left field that, you know, I was terrified. I would screw something up, but, um, at the same time, um, kind of like you said, fate in a way it seemed like I, I had this feeling that you know I was meant to do this. This was this is something I was meant to do. So um, there was a calmness in, in that sense, but you know there's definitely nerves when you're stepping into a new role and and, and thinking about all that Mickey means to so many people and, and and knowing that people know what Mickey sounds like and Wayne Wayne brought so much life and emotion and gentleness and kindness to to Mickey's voice that, you know, people expect and they want to hear. So, um, it's, it's, you know, it wasn't so much just, uh, being able to make a sound, um, and sound like Mickey. It was being able to bring all of that, um, to Mickey and, and, and help him live on in what Wayne and Jimmy and Walt had already established. So lots of nerves, lots of nerves. I still get nervous to this day. (laughs) Um, and, and, and I tell people, you know, I, I hope that that never goes away because, it's still surreal. It's still exciting. It's still very humbling. Um, and I don't want that to go away. I don't, I don't want it to ever go to my head or, and I don't think it will because I'm, I'm not that type of person. And every time I get the phone call that we have a new session, it's just, it's just as exciting. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a Disney geek down in my core. So I'm so excited to find out about the new projects. Like, oh, we're new, doing a new parade or uh, a new toy or a new show. It, it's It's so exciting for me to be, to have that backstage view into it. And, and then when I stop to think about what it is I get to do, um, yeah, it's it's amazing. It's it's an honor and uh, a huge responsibility as well.
1: Yeah. No pressure being Mickey Mouse. I'm sure (laughs) (laughs) no
2: pressure at all.
1: But again, considering that, you know, unfortunately you've got this legacy behind you and you did miss out on the opportunity to learn from Wayne directly. So in preparing for it to be, the Brett Mickey Mouse, is it trying to craft his voice to be Wayne Allwine or do you try and bring a little bit of your own passion and energy and, and personality maybe into the voice?
2: Um, well, you know, I heard Wayne once say in an interview that um, when you're voicing these characters, you start to recognize a lot of their qualities in you. And uh, when I first started, everybody told me that when I would meet Bill, Wayne, and, or I'm sorry, Bill, Tony, and Lucy, that I would quickly find out that they are their characters. Um, and that's proven true. And I remember thinking to myself, well, am I Mickey? And, and, you know, the more I've I've done it, the more I start to recognize a lot of his qualities in me. Um, the, the shy, bashful side of him, the naivety, I definitely have those qualities. Um, so I, I think I can't help but bring those to the character. Um, wh- in terms of the sound of the voice, I know I am always referencing... Uh, Wayne and um I have you know a CD I listened to on my way to the studio just to kind of get me warmed up but then also you know trying to go back to to, to Walt Mickey because he you know he's the one who originated it and I think Wayne and, and Jimmy would both tell you that you know they they sought to preserve Walt Mickey so there's definitely that that I that I uh, aim aim for when doing it um yeah, I think I think that answered your question. I got kind of on a ramble there. <laughs> no,
1: no, that, that's great, and it's great to hear sort of inside your thought process as to becoming that character. So you've been Mickey for a while now. Uh, you've been kind of everywhere, everywhere from Epic Mickey to uh, mm-hmm. starting to come into the theme parks. If I'm correct, you are now the That's Right, It's Out of This World Mickey
2: on the People Mover in Walt Disney World? <laughs> That's right. Uh yeah, that was one of the earlier projects I did um when they revamped the the People Mover. So, it's there and I was actually there about a month ago and I got to hear it for the first time and I did not realize that if you stood under the the People Mover bridge, you would hear Mickey over and over <laughs> and over. So, I apologize to anyone who's sat there too long and <laughs> Listen to it for too long.
1: No, it's great to hear Mickey back on there. Uh, any other attractions in Walt Disney World that maybe we could listen for the, the voice of
2: Mickey as Brett? Brett as Mickey? Oh, gosh. Um, let's see if I can remember. Well, um, like I think I mentioned my first um, job was doing the Adventurer's Celebration, which is the end of the day at Animal Kingdom. Um, little little play-along, sing-along dance party that comes out with Mickey, Goofy, and Minnie, I believe. And I think sometimes it's Goofy, sometimes it's Mickey, but um, you can hear me there. Um, The People Mover, of course, and gosh, I'm trying to think what else. uh, You know, I I know there's some commercials playing right now for uh, Typhoon Lagoon and the water parks and uh, maybe some other stuff there. So, yeah, I I do so much that it's hard to keep track. Uh, (laughs) People ask what I did last week, and I, I have a hard time remembering because there's just so much, but the variety of projects definitely keeps me on my toes.
1: i want to ask one more quick question before we talk about the fundraiser on May 7th. I always thought about this, especially for a voiceover actor like yourself who's doing such mm-hmm. an iconic ca- character. You know, you're the guy. You are the voice. Is there no one else? Like, is there a, a backup Mickey, a Mickey understudy? Like, what if he gets sick or go on vacation? Or is it, <laughs> do they do that frantic search, um, you know, if you get a sore throat?
2: Well, you know, I've I've heard it um, explained like this before. There's there's no Johnny Depp backup, <laughs> uh, you know. So um, we we don't have as character voice actors for Disney. We don't have backups. Um, you know, we, we do our best to stay healthy and have our voices sounding the best because um, there is so much work that we uh, we want to stay on our toes. Yeah. So um, I I am the fourth and only official English speaking Mickey. For the world, um, there are there's Mickey's, you know, for Paris and Japan and Germany. Um, there's guys that do the 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 dubbing over there. Um, but yeah, yeah, but you're Even the dub I still get to do stuff for <laughs> those theme parks over there. So you're
1: still Mickey number one, you know, in our oh, book. Wow. So, all right, <laughs> let's talk real quick about the Thank You Walt Disney fundraiser on May seventh. Uh, That's a private evening with uh, Mickey and Donald. Tell us a little bit about the foundation and the event, because they're doing great work up there.
2: They are. Um, Like I mentioned earlier, the Thank You Walt Disney organization has taken on the task of restoring Walt's original Laugh-O-Gram studio, uh, which not only being significant for Disney animation with Walt and uh, Iwork starting out there, um, but a lot of other legendary animators who went on to work at Warner Brothers and hanna barbera and MGM. They they also got their start there. So um, there's a lot of history there in Kansas City. They are working to restore that building with the hopes of turning it into a uh, an, a museum, an animation museum, an educational um, facility. Um, they've done a lot of great work so far. When I moved to Kansas City in 2004, it was really kind of a shell of a building. Since then, they've reinforced the walls. They've been able to pour a brand new first floor. Um, they got a roof put back on the building, and um, you know they're on their way. But um, there's a lot of work to to be done yet, so they have these yearly fundraisers, and I'm really excited to be participating in it this year, um, along with Voice of Donald Duck and my friend Tony Anselmo. We'll both be out there for an evening of jazz and hors d'oeuvres, and um, we're going to spend some time talking about our journeys. Uh, I'll, I'll share more about my, my journey of becoming Mickey Mouse and um, the exciting time I've had getting to know everybody and work with everybody out here. Um, And there's also going to be a a silent auction and a live auction, and um, both being artists, Tony and I have um, donated a couple pieces each, a couple drawings um, that will be up for auction. And then, you know, of course, question and answer time, just kind of mingle and greet, and uh, I think we'll be doing some autographs if you have anything to be autographed by by us. So it's going to be a great time. I'm really looking forward to it. I, I think it's a great organization. I'm really excited to, to do my part in, uh, in restoring that because, um, you know, I definitely have a passion for Walt and the legacy and, and what he stood for. And he has so much history out there in Missouri, especially Kansas City, that uh, I want to make sure that gets recognized and, and saved for future generations.
1: Yeah, I wish I could get out there. For those people who are up in the area who want to learn more, you can visit ThankYouWaltDisney.org. I also have a great article on the WDW Radio blog about the laugh gram Studios and uh, trying to refurbish those and bring those back from John Nell. I'll put a link to that in this week's show notes. Uh, Brett, I have to tell you, it's been great talking to you. When I told my kids that I was going to be talking to Mickey Mouse the other night, they literally dropped their forks and their mouths (laughs) sat agape. Um, But for you... I can't imagine the honor uh, and the pressure that it must be being the voice of Mickey Mouse. Uh, you are carrying on uh, an incredible tradition and an incredible legacy that began with Walt Disney himself. So I want to thank you for your work and for taking time out of your day to uh, to come and join us on the show.
2: Well, thank you. Thanks. It's been a blast talking to you. And like I said, it's definitely an honor to uh, be continuing the legacy. So thanks. I appreciate it.
1: Hope to get a chance to meet you in person someday soon.
2: Definitely.